Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Colossians, the book of Colossians in the New Testament? And I want to begin by reading uh, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And if you don't mind and you're able to, would you stand with me as we read this together? It begins as follows. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator." Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes are on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for men." since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we begin with your word because we believe that that's where all wisdom, insight, and understanding begins. And we want to have open hearts and open ears to hear and to see and to receive what your word says, God, that it might have its ability to make a difference in our lives. 
I pray that beyond even just knowing it, Lord, that you would be prophetic this morning. That is, that your Holy Spirit would take the word and, and carry it deep within the inner parts of our lives, and you would begin to speak to us and touch us in places where maybe heretofore we haven't even been aware that there's a need, but that God, that the end result would be our response in faith, in surrender, in humility before you, that you might be magnified in us as your people. Give us this grace, Lord. Give us this perspective and this help we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up in Southern California in the late 50s, early 60s, Larry Waters, Walters was like a lot of people. He lived right near El Toro Marine Air Base, and he would watch the fighter jets taking off every day and every evening and began to develop within himself a desire, a yearning, an ambition that one day he would become a fighter pilot. Well, when he finished high school, he went to see his local enlister, and he was told that... Um, Unfortunately, his eyesight didn't rise to the level necessary to be a pilot, but there were a lot of jobs in the military open to him. And, of course, he ended up going into the Air Force and becoming a, uh, a police officer, a military police officer, served his six years, never really even getting into a military airplane. And when he was discharged, he went home, moved into Los Angeles, into Long Beach, California, and got a job as a truck driver and was living a fairly satisfactory life. The year 1982, uh, sunny afternoon, he's sitting in his backyard in his Sears lawn chair, and he notices the airliners taking off and landing as they came into Los Angeles International Airport. And in that seminal moment, Larry had a flash of inspiration. Jumping up from his lawn chair, he ran to his Jeep, jumped into it, and drove down to his army surplus store. And there he proceeded to buy 40 weather balloons. These are the kind that, you know, inflate about three or four meters across, and they checked wind directions and temperature at various heights. He bought 40 of those along with some netting and some cord. And then he went down to uh, a, a gas provider and bought canisters of, of helium. And he brought all this home and he began constructing what is known as a cluster balloon. Filling up the balloons, he stuffed them inside of the netting that he had bought. And then he tied them to the bumper of his car so that they wouldn't drift away. And when he'd finally filled them up, there they were rising up above his backyard, and he began to look around for a, well, a form of conveyance, if you will, and it suddenly struck him that his Sears lawn chair would work just fine. So he attached his lawn chair to the balloons, went in the house and made himself a stack of sandwiches, grabbed a six-pack of Miller Lite and his BB pistol. Because at this point, Larry had a fully formed plan. He was going to sit in his lawn chair and safely strap himself with a rope across his waist, disengage the cord that was holding it to the bumper of his Jeep, and drift lazily 100 feet over his backyard and kind of enjoy the scenery for a while. And then 
when he got tired, he would just simply start shooting out the balloons one by one, reducing the loft and helping him to return back to Earth, terra firma, safely. This is where Larry's plan began to break down. You see, he, he certainly wasn't a physicist and didn't understand a lot of the principles of loft and aerodynamics because when he disconnected the rope from the Jeep, he didn't lazily drift 100 feet over his backyard. It might be close to say that he shot up like a rocket. <laughs> and he didn't stop at 200, 300. He didn't stop at 1,000 feet. Ultimately, Larry became the record holder for the highest cluster balloon at 16,000 feet. And we might not even know what happened to Larry. People might have said alien abduction or the rapture of the church because there was no record of where he was or where he was going until he crossed into uh, restricted airspace over Los Angeles International. And a Pan Am jet was taking off, and as it passed up 10,000 feet, sent a message back to the tower. Basically, they said, tower... We've just passed a man in a lawn chair <laughs> at 10,000 feet, and he's armed. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, suddenly there was a scrambling of all sorts of aircraft. They eventually settled on a high-altitude helicopter, and they were able to locate Larry as he was beginning to drift out over the Pacific Ocean tethering him and slowly leading him over the next several hours back to land. Eventually, Larry got over uh, an open area and began firing off his pistol. And slowly, as the balloons burst, they began to drift down to the earth, only to be entangled in high power wires, which brought out, of course, the fire department, the, the utilities department, and the Los Angeles Police Department. When they finally got Larry down late that night, uh, as they were loading him into a troop, uh, into a police car, uh, one of the news reporters that were now on scene thrust a microphone in his face and said, Larry, why did you do it? And his answer kind of said a lot about Larry. He said, you know, you just can't sit around in your backyard all the time doing nothing. <laughs> now, I wish this were the end of Larry's story, and this is a true story. I mean, if you go into the archives of the Los Angeles Times, you can find it. In fact, Larry even wrote a book about his adventures. The only problem is nobody read it. He uh, uh, tried to create a, a, a career out of it. He put himself out as an inspirational speaker, but... You know, stupidness isn't not really inspirational, unless you're in politics. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it really kind of went worse, and, and he went kind of in a funk, and one day Larry walked down to, into the Los Angeles forest by himself and put a, a gun to his head and committed suicide, and he died there. Um, what Larry went through is, is often referred to as the law of unintended consequences. And the law of unintended consequences is this. It says, outcomes that are not the ones foreseen and intended by a purposeful action. In other words, you're planning on one thing and you end up getting something very different. And I would say 
that when you talk about marriage, this is pretty much true for anybody who gets married. We've talked a lot about the, the challenges of marriage and the, the unknowable aspects of marriage before you actually are. And so you realize that what you think you're going to get from a relationship is rarely identical to what actually takes place. In fact, for many, the idea of living happily ever after uh, can deteriorate into being something just okay. I mean, we wouldn't want to say, well, we got married and we lived adequately ever after, or mostly okay some of the time ever after. But for a lot of people, there is kind of a feeling that they're settling for something less than what God had intended. In fact, for many others, it's even worse that marriage itself has proven to be a very a painful, tragic, and horribly disappointing experience that's left deep scarring on their souls, damage to their life. And as we talked about in the past, this was not God's intention. God's intention is that marriage would be joyous. And, and in a way, the reason why we go into marriage expecting it to be a joyous thing is because God creates that expectation and hopefulness in our hearts. And some people say, well, I'm a realist now, and I was naive and I was immature, but I would say it's more likely that what's happened is you become cynical and you've given up. You stop believing that God can do something amazing in this relationship. And unfortunately, we often buy into the deception that really the reason I'm not living happily ever after is because I didn't marry the right person. And the problem with that reasoning is that no matter how right that person is, there's always some person in the marriage who is the wrong person, and that's you. And so we've talked a lot about how that when you talk, when you work on developing a relationship, it really has to begin with your own self. But the question would remain out there is why did I refer to this as the art of marriage? And it's because great marriages are like great art. They don't just happen. I love the way Michelangelo described once how he went about his craft and it's a kind of description that causes every, the, all the rest of us to realize why we've never chiseled the Pieta or the, uh, or the uh, David statues or anything like that. He said, in every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and in action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that impress the lovely apparition, to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. I've had an opportunity to actually kind of be up close and personal with some of da Vinci's work, particularly the Pieta, which is, I mean, you can capture in a photograph, but when you're looking at it from just a few feet away, it's, it, it, it dwarfs your imagination. You, you sit there and you say, how in the world could this have ever once been just a block of marble. How did the man manage to do that? How did he take advantage of even the cracks and the fissures and the flaws that he discovered as he was doing the work? And instead of throwing the thing away, he just simply had the genius to incorporate it into the greater work. Some of you would say, well, I'm not a fan of great art, and let me tell you why. You've never seen it in real life. <laughs> Let me go tell you, when you see real art up close and personal, there is something that grabs you 
that you realize that there is such a genius to be able to see the subtleties of what the artist was able to craft. But even with that in the end, despite the great genius and the ability to imagine, it still comes down to the chisel and the mallet. It comes down to sweat and toil. It comes back to adjustments and adaptations that are able to release the beauty that's hidden deep inside the stone. Can I suggest to you that marriage is designed by God to be the same way? That it is certainly something that we have to begin believing and having a vision for. That this relationship can be this wondrous thing that I've always wanted it to be. But there are, there's also an application of skill and ability. There's an application of technique. There's an application of, of hard work and toil so that that which God has placed within that relationship can beautifully manifest itself. You see, great marriage is the result of a lot of sweat and a lot of toil, a lot of conflict. Can you think of any greater conflict than putting a chisel up against a, a piece of stone and hitting it with a mallet? There's a conflict for you. And I know that some of you feel like that's what being married is like. You feel like you're being hammered and chiseled and broken down. But nonetheless, what happens over that time is that the chiseling away creates a thing of beauty. And that's, again, I, I repeat myself, but great marriages don't just happen. They're, they're created, they're formed by the chiseling, as Paul spoke of in this particular passage, the chiseling away that comes, the sculpting tools, if you will, of compassion, of being able to put myself into a place where I know the other person. It comes from kindness where I make the decision that I will treat them not the way I feel, but the way I know I should. It comes from humility, realizing that there has to be a lowering of myself. There's a gentleness which makes you safe. There's a patience which means you're willing to give the time. There's a forbearance where you don't make issues of small things or weaknesses. There is forgiveness where you determine that you're not going to hold a grudge. And as Paul would go on to say, and ultimately there is love which brings a perfect unity to all of these seven virtues that he just listed. You see, think of those things as the tools that God has given to shape this relationship. And as you take them, you decide that I'm going to chisel with compassion. I'm going to chisel with kindness. I'm going to chisel with humility. I'm going to chisel with gentleness and patience and forbearance. And most of all, with forgiveness, I'm going to commit myself to this love of this other person. Yes, I know some of you people are going to say, well, basically all this happens with God's help. And I'm not arguing that point. It is by his grace. It's grace that allows itself, us to express any of these virtues in our life. But it's also Paul who said to the Philippians, put into action God's saving work in your lives obeying God with deep reverence and fear. The bigger problem, I think, that we find within the Christian living in general is that there are so many who are saved and yet have not come to a place of full surrender. 
Maybe that's an overstatement to King say full surrender because quite honestly, I'm discovering unsurrendered territories in my life on a daily basis. But what is the tra trajectory of your walk with God? Is it one to increasing surrender? Or are you stagnated in this place of where you don't want to yield to God? You don't want to give in to God because you're afraid of what the consequence might be. We mean to keep in mind that on one hand, it's true to say that God alone can save. No man can save himself. No man can save another. God alone is the one who can save. But here's the irony and the sovereignty of God. Man alone can only surrender. That God has given to me the capacity, as we've talked before, to say no to God, so that when God says, yield to me, I'll say, when I feel like it, or I'm more comfortable, or at some time in the future. And in doing so, he just said, no, I'm not going to do it. I find this dynamic in people's lives, and I don't think I'm exempt from it, that when I'm hearing something I do not want to hear, even from God himself, I have an ability to turn a deaf ear to God to pretend like I don't hear him. So that when Paul gives the exhortation, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it's something that we have to allow to happen. We have to allow that to happen, to let it dwell in us richly, which means we, we have to read it. But beyond that, we have to think about what we've just read. And we have to be open to saying, God, let the implications of your truth begin to change and touch me. Max Lucado referred to this as the courtesy of Christ. I love the way he put this. He says, he always knocks before entering. And when you answer, he awaits your invitation to cross the threshold. Behold, I stand at the door and that knock. You know, Jesus doesn't come into your life like the SWAT team with a battering ram busting down the door and saying, hands up, on the floor, over your head. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He doesn't take you captive unless, of course, we say that in a way we have been taken captive by his love and his grace. But he stands patiently, quietly, knocking at the door of your heart. And when you open it, he waits for you to say, you can come in. So the question, I think, before I even go any further, and, and this does directly apply to what it means to be married, is are, are you first and foremost saved? And secondly, are you surrendered to Christ? Because it's only then, that you, when you really know him, that you can do what Paul says here, that you set your heart, your mind, on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not on earthly things. That's the only way it can happen. I can't fall in love with someone that I have no concept of. And that's the whole point. And it's interesting why I read almost the entirety of that chapter is because you notice towards the very end, he says, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. And it's easy for us to miss the, the whole 20 verses that preceded that. That my love for my wife, my wife's love for me, is predicated on a greater previous assumption. And that assumption is that I have been saved and that I am surrendered to his will and I'm willing to follow the path. And this is one of many ways in which I let my light shine into the world. If there's anything that I think is 
developed within our culture is the idea that somehow our marriage relationships, our family relationships, all our relationships that, for that matter, somehow exist outside of the call of God upon our lives. And therefore, we can know the Bible forward and backwards. We can be governed by all sorts of disciplines, spiritual, mental, emotional, psychological, and all these things, and yet somehow those things are enabled to never are kept from ever infecting our marriages. And yet when we look at Paul's call to spiritual leadership in writing to Timothy and Titus, he gives 21 different qualifications of a spiritual leader, and five of them have to do with your family life. Because the church is intended by God to be basically a prototype of the marriage, and the marriage a prototype of the church. And we begin to understand that, that when we're talking about the marriage relationship, we're talking about the, the very center of what it means to express the Christianity. There was a saying when I was a boy, I used to hear all the time, they'd say, let charity begin at home. And that was a way in which you could keep from having given your money to other people, you give it to yourself. But I looked at that one day and took it back to its beginnings. And what it meant was let the love that God gives you begin to express itself first within the context of your own home not the other side of the world. There's no end to the lists and the stories of, of pastors and missionaries who laid their life down for the sake of the gospel and lost their marriages and their kids in the process. And right now today in Christianity, the divorce rate amongst pastors is the highest in the history of the church. I would simply say that if your heart is not surrendered to God, or if you don't know Jesus Christ, there's not a great deal about what I'm going to say that's going to be particularly helpful. Um, it will come to you as religious rigors that will only frustrate you and not encourage you. But if you have, on the other hand, set your heart and your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God... I know that you're gonna, you would recognize and understand something that Solomon said about marriage. In Proverbs 18.22, he said, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Now, I think that also applies to guys and ladies. If you find a husband, you've found a good thing. You may have to wash him up and change his wardrobe, but you've found a uh, make him stop wearing that same flannel shirt every day. But nonetheless, you found something that's good. It's the idea that your wife or your husband is a gift from God, not a burden. Now, I know some of you, and you don't, please don't speak out, I know there's some of you right now who are sitting there saying, well, what kind of gift is that? You know, well, I put it in the category of the sweat of your brow, iron sharpening iron kind of gift. It's a gift of change. That God brings into your life this major change agent who can affect you greater than anybody else in your world can. They have a way of just kind of being absorbed into your life to such a degree, even if you try to resist it, that you have to deal with stuff that otherwise you might get away with not dealing with. 
As Paul Evans put it so well, he says, marriage can help heal us of our most unlovable parts. And he says, and we all have unlovable parts. We all have them. Proverbs, again, Solomon said in chapter 27, the wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. As my dear wife said to me one time, I wouldn't tell you these things if I didn't love you. <laughs> but I tell you because I love you, and, and secondly, when you do them, you make me look bad too. <laughs> so I'm telling you this, for your own good. It's wounding, granted. Anybody who says anything that assaults our sense of ourself is going to be perceived as a wound, and the natural response is one to want to raise a protective barrier, but the simple fact is those wounds are faithful, and we need to hear them, because even as they tell them these things that we may not want to hear, they're not walking out the door as they're doing it, hopefully. You see, here's the tough thing. I doubt there's a single one of us in this room who doesn't want to change something about their life. But what I discovered about myself is I really want to change. I just don't want to have to change. <laughs> I really want to change. I just don't want to have to change. I really want to be a better version of myself, but I really want to hold on to myself. And as some would convince you that, no, it's probably better to let that version of yourself go. Because God wants to give a new version of yourself. It's called new in Christ. But in order to go through that change, you have to go through a process, if you will. There are really uh, three different stages that a marriage potentially can go through. Most marriages that fail, I mean, in fact, all marriages that fail never make it past part two. But let me explain what I'm talking about. That essentially these three things, illusion, disillusion, and enrichment, are the pathways that every relationship goes through. And it begins with the idea of illusion. Illusion is the fun part. Why is illusion the fun part? Because of the chemical reaction that happens inside of you. One researcher put it this way. He says, when we begin to feel attracted to someone... A chemical, phenylethylamine, called PEA, like P, PEA, is an amphetamine-like chemical that is rapidly activated as fast as lightning. It hits your system. He says PEA is the famous substance that makes laboratory rats press levers until they drop dead from exhaustion. It's amazing mood elevator. In fact, chocolate has a lot of PEA in it. You think you just like chocolate? No, you're, you're an addict. <laughs> Alcohol tends to heighten it, cause it to increase. Diane Ackerman, who wrote a, on this, a natural history of the senses, She's a scientist who wrote this, said that PEA speeds up the flow of information between the nerve cells, whipping the brain into a frenzy of excitement, sending ordinary attraction into overdrive, and providing the assertive oomph needed to take social risks and overcome any obstacles to mating. 
Interesting. I was always trying to figure out where did I get the nerve in, in junior high to walk across the gym floor because it was segregated, guys on this side, girls on that side. Not because they told us we had to do it, but we knew this is the way it worked. And to walk across that empty floor to a young lady and said, would you like to dance with me? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, I look back on it saying, even today that terrifies me. Because in your mind you're going, why would she? Are you serious? You talking to me? You talking to me? <laughs> There's something that emboldens us to put ourselves out there, to pursue this relationship, to begin to go through this behavioral change. In fact, what it does is it begins to create kind of a hue and an aura around yourself. We talk about people who view the world through rose-colored glasses. In other words, there's a tint on their lenses that makes them see the world around them with a little bit more beauty, a little softer, a little more attractiveness. That's called infatuation. And infatuation is wonderful. In fact, you probably look back on those days when you were first dating your beloved and you still called him or her your beloved. And you used to make little doodles about them and think about them and look forward to seeing and being with them and all that emotion that went with it. And you look back with this romantic envy of how did we lose that? And the answer is really simple. All drugs wear off. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, talk to any addict. You get sober. And what we find is that they've done surveys about the effects of PEA on, on, on people's behavior, and they find every culture on the planet expresses this whole dynamic of infatuation, and it lasts somewhere between two years and four years, and then after that, it begins to weaken and wear out. And it's at that point of weakening that we enter into often the second stage of disillusion. Now, there's a certain dynamic here that if your illusions are way up here, I mean, you're super unrealistic about the person that you're marrying, then disillusion becomes kind of a free fall that can be pretty painful. And in other words, here's a, here's a, 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 a principle of, of, of physics of the world that you may want to apply. The higher the height you fall from, the greater damage to the organism. You know, if you fall from a high place, you're going to feel the injury much more acutely than if you fall from a short distance, generally speaking. And so the more unrealistic you are about the person that you're married, the more painful it is, which is probably the primary reason that the younger that you marry, the higher the chance that you're going to divorce. Because when we're younger, we're still very inexperienced and naive, and we make a lot of assumptions about the other person that may not prove to be true. Uh, I explained to somebody, I said, you know, that when you get married, you're kind of like operating on credit. Basically, someone has lent you their trust. Spend it carefully. Because when you damage that trust, then suddenly you go from having an, a balance, a plus balance, you have a negative balance in your account and, ref and every one of us knows this from personal finances, right? It's a lot harder to put money into the bank after you don't have any than it is when you already have some. 
But that's the whole point. You, sometimes we spend that trust dynamic in a way that leaves us relationally bankrupt. The two problems, again, with, with PEA is number one, they only last two to four years. You can't build a life together. But secondly, there are people who become relationship addicts. The relationship addicts, you, you, you've met those people, right? Well, we just fell out of love. You just fell out of love? I mean, I get it if you say, I fell out of the car. <laughs> but you don't, you don't, you're not in love, and then you just fall out of love. Or, you know, we have millions of songs. I've lost that love and feeling. Oh, of course you have. Your PEA has run out. <laughs> Where do you think it went? Or I love Olivia. Torn between two lovers, what can I do? Stop being a juvenile, for one. I mean, there's this dynamic that we've built into our culture and our music is wrapped in all this idea that I'm feeling this for you, baby, like I've never felt anything for anybody else except yesterday. You know, it's... A, and when we hit that moment where suddenly our eyes begin to clear and this moment of clarity and, and you discover things about this other person that you married that you may have seen glimpses of but you talked yourself into believing weren't really there. They don't bathe regularly. They don't brush with discipline. They're not neat. They're not clean. They're not hardworking. Or maybe even worse, they're not faithful. They're not kind. They're not compassionate. They're not caring. Depending on how great the illusion is will determine how painful the disillusion is when it comes. The disillusionment phase is a phase of crisis and conflict. Somebody once said, some wag once said, anyone who's been married for more than a week has grounds for divorce. Now, <laughs> it's a pretty... <laughs> it, but there's a certain truth to it. I mean, a certain truth, if the grounds for divorce is you don't make me happy anymore or you don't bring me flowers, you know. As PEA PA wears off, the golden hues lift, the clarity returns, and somewhere between the second and the seventh year, disillusionment begins to become an issue that you have to deal with. You begin to find the things that once attracted you to that person now irritate you. Talking with somebody recently, and it's kind of interesting because they had this person, who, there's a couple of guys, but this one person, just the guy's just funny. I mean, just, he's hilarious. Just the sense of humor just would keep me laughing. And then they ended up spending an extended period of time together, 24 hours a day as they worked on a project. And what was funny suddenly became irritating, and the person said to me, what happened was, it was funny for a while, but he just never stopped. <laughs> never stopped. And suddenly the thing that was so attractive now becomes an irritation. That's what begins to take place in a relationship. The, the fact that uh, they're carefree and spontaneous becomes irritating when they run out of gas halfway to where you need to be. The fact that they never worry about money isn't fun anymore when they've spent it on something stupid and now you can't meet necessary needs. 
The fact that they just love people and are friendly is great until you realize that they love and are friendly with other women or other men. And all of these things began to become irritants. They become points of conflict, points of disappointment. And before long, disrespect and resentment, even contempt grows to one another. And we begin to say things like, what made me want to marry this person in the first place? And we fantasize, I could have done better. For many couples, I'm afraid this signifies the beginning of the end. The disillusion becomes the beginning of the conclusion of the marriage relationship. And that's unfortunate because there is a hopelessness and a lack of faith that God can build something wondrous. Somebody put it really well one time, that before you can have a breakthrough, you have to have a breakdown. Before you can have a breakthrough, there has to be a breakdown. Because until we have been broken down and we've humbled ourselves and said, God, I'm desperate I, I'm at the, my end's wit. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to change this. I'm locked into this relationship, and I can't see any hope of this ever changing or getting any better. God, if you don't do something, nothing's going to happen. It's at that moment of total desperation where we've broken down and said, I, I can't do this anymore. That is also the moment in which God begins to create opportunities for great breakthroughs, but usually he begins by saying what you need to do is humble yourself and confess your faults one to another and ask that the other would pray for you. Because when we begin to move in that direction, this becomes what I call the positive option. It's an option. We live in an era where we're so convinced that it's about marrying just the right person who is a perfect fit for us that we don't even look for any opportunity to salvage this relationship. We live in an era that people have very little commitment. Marriage is no longer considered a sacred covenant before God, and therefore people feel like any other contractual relationship that didn't work out, they're going to cut and run. I think about Solomon's words, or excuse me, David's word in Psalm 16, where he said, blessed is the man who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. Where's the blessing of God to be experienced? He says, when you make a commitment and you say, because I made that commitment, I'm going to keep that commitment, even if it's costly for me. He says, that's the man that God looks at and says, I'm going to bless you. And I find today we live in an age where people are saying, well, I said I'd do that, but you know, well, I'm, I can't really do that because I'm too busy and I don't want to really do that because I want to do this instead. And then they turn around and say, I just don't feel like God's blessings on my life. Why do you think that's the case? Because God says, I bless it when you keep your covenants. That's why he also warns Solomon, be careful what you vow to do, because God takes no pleasure in fools who make a vow and don't keep it. How do you please God? You realize, God, I, I'm committed to this person. Now I know. Some of you are going to say, well, you don't understand my situation. I know I don't. And I'm not saying that person who gets a divorce is in wrong or in sin. There are all sorts of circumstances and dynamics that we don't have the time to go into the detail and, and, and squirrel out. But I'm simply saying that unless we begin with the premise that this is a, a lifetime commitment that I'm making, a vow I'm professing, unless we begin there, 
you're probably predestining yourself for a broken relationship. You have to begin there. Hopefully, if you begin there, you think and pray more carefully before you ever allow yourself to get into that kind of commitment. Because what I've found with people who have been successful in Christ in their marriages is before they ever got married, they got on their knees and they said, God, is this your will? Is this your will? Is this what you want? I remember my wife and I going through that when we were engaged and when suddenly marriage actually became a reality. And I remember sitting there saying, God, if this is not what you want, then close this door. And if it is what you want, then bless it. But your will be done because I no longer belong to myself. I don't give myself in marriage to another person. God gives me in marriage to another person as a gift. He gives that person to you as a gift, a gift that will create change in your life, a gift that becomes really not a place but rather a path, not a destination but rather a never-ending journey based upon something Jesus said in Acts 20.35. He said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. The greater blessing is to be the giver. You see, there are really three kinds of marriages out there in the world. There's the common marriage we find where you have two people who are takers. It's all about getting. I married you so that you could fulfill what I have lacking inside of me. And when you have a man and woman who have that orientation of life, that you're here to take, to, to please me. I'm here to get from you, to take from you what I need for my life. You have what you call a, a pre-divorce relationship. Because you see it all the time in couples who are heading for a divorce. They'll go on to great length telling people like me how bad the other person is, how this other person has let them down, how the other person has failed them, how they haven't lived up to their commitments, what, on and on and on. And I'm not saying it's not true. It may be all true. But the problem is you find your two people standing at different corners of the room demanding that the other one lay their life down and the other person says, I'm not laying my life down. You're not safe because you're not. Now, that's what I call a dead marriage. Then there's just the bad marriage where you have one person who's a giver and one person who's a taker. And I say it's a bad marriage because one person actually loves it that way. I mean, I'm try, I try to convince my wife all the time, I want you to dedicate every moment of your life thinking, what can I do to make my husband happy? When I read that story last week, I thought, I hope she's listening to this. But when you say, but as for myself, I'm just going to take care of me. It's like I said to one of my granddaughters the other day. I said, look, look at I'm tired about talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while? <laughs> you know, it's, it's that kind of mindset that it's, it's all about me and you're, I'm, I'm allowing you to be part of my life to enjoy the, uh, you know, to be the wind beneath my wings. Or there's the fulfilled marriage where you have two people who are each givers and they're trying to outgive each other. That is an enriched relationship. That is a satisfying relationship. It's the relationship we all yearn for, but what it means is that each has to take their eyes off of themselves and begin to look with compassion and kindness and humility 
to be forgiving and forbearing and wrapping that all up in a package of loving. That's where happily ever after is found. But it requires again that our eyes and our ears are not occluded, but we're letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Letting the word of Christ, that in other words, our place of beginning is the word of God, not simply our feelings. And we put to death those things that need to be put to death. And we rid ourselves of those things that we need to be rid of. And we clothe ourselves with the compassion, the kindness, humility, gentleness, and so forth that God calls us to it. And when we wrap all of these things in love. But the question always comes back, okay, well, what does love look like? Well, I'm going to close by reading you a story. Um, it's one of my favorite stories that kind of makes me misty every time I read it. It was written by uh, Patricia McGurr back in the 50s, and it's been republished in various publications. I think Reader's Digest carried it last. But it's entitled, Johnny Lingo's Eight Cow Wife. Some of you have heard this before. But it reads this way. It says, when I sailed to Kiniwata, an island in the Pacific, I took along a notebook. And after I got back, I was filled with descriptions of flora and fauna and native customs and costumes. But the only note that still interests me is the one that says, Johnny Lingo gave eight cows to Sarita's father. And I don't need to have it in writing. I'm reminded of it every time I see a woman belittling her husband or a wife withering under her husband's scorn. And I want to say to them, you should know why Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for his wife. Johnny Lingo wasn't exactly his name, but that's what Schenken, the manager of the guest house on Kiniwata, called him. Schenken was from Chicago and had a habit of Americanizing the name of the islanders. But Johnny was mentioned by many people in, in many connections. If I wanted to spend a few days on the neighboring island of Nurabandi, Johnny Lingo could put me up. If I wanted to fish, he could show me where the fish were biting best. If it was pearls I sought, he would bring me the best buys. The people of Kiniwata all spoke highly of Johnny Lingo, yet when they spoke, they smiled, and the smiles were slightly mocking. Get Johnny Lingo to help you find what you want and let him do the bargaining, advised Schenken. Johnny knows how to make a deal. Johnny Lingo, a boy seated nearby hooted the name and rocked with laughter. What goes on, I demanded. Everybody tells me to get in touch with Johnny Lingo and then breaks up. Let me in on the joke. Oh, the people like to laugh, Schenken said, shruggingly. Johnny's the brightest, the strongest young man in the islands, and for his age, the richest. But if all you say is true, what is there to laugh about? Only one thing. Five months ago at the fall festival, Johnny came to Kiniwata and found himself a wife. He paid her father eight cows. Well, I knew enough about island customs to be impressed. Two or three cows would buy a fair to middling wife. And of course, inflation has changed that now. But <laughs> Four or five, a highly satisfactory one. Eight cows, I said. She must have beauty that takes your breath away. She's not ugly, he conceded and smiled a little, but the kindest you could only call Sarita plain. Sam Carew, her father, was afraid she'd be left on his hands. 
But then he got eight cows for her. Isn't that extraordinary? Never been paid before. Yet you call Johnny's wife plain. I said it would be kindness to call her plain. She was skinny. She walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked. And she was scared of her own shadow. Well, I said, I guess there's no accounting for love. True enough, agreed the man, and that's why the villagers grin when they talk about Johnny. They get special satisfaction from the fact that the sharpest trader in the islands was bested by dull old Sam Carew. But how? No one knows. Everyone wonders. All the cousins were urging Sam to ask for three cows, hold out for two, until he was sure Johnny paid only one. And then Johnny came to Sam Carew and said, Father of Sarita... I offer eight cows for your daughter. Eight cows, I murmured. I'd like to meet this Johnny Lingo. And I wanted fish and I wanted pearls. So the next afternoon, I beached my boat at Norabondi. And as I noticed, as I asked direction to Johnny's house, that his name brought no sly smile to the lips of his fellow Norabondians. And when I met the slim, serious young man, when he welcomed me into his home, I was glad that from his own people he had respect unmingled with mockery. We sat in his house and talked, and then he asked, You've come from Kiniwata? Yes. They speak of me on that island? They say there's nothing I might want that you can't help me get. He smiled gently. My wife is from Kiniwata. Yes, I know. They speak of her? A little. What do they say? Why just, the question caught me off balance. They told me you were married at festival time. Nothing more? The curve of his eyebrows told me he knew there had to be more. They ask, they ask, his eyes lightly, lighted with pleasure, Everyone knows about the eight cows, and they wonder why. He says, and in Nuribandi, everyone knows it too. His chest expands with satisfaction and said, always and forever when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought, vanity. And then I saw her. I watched her enter the room to place flowers on the table. She stood still a moment and smiled at the young man beside me, and then she went swiftly out again. She was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him looking at me. You admire her, he murmured. <laughs> She's... She's glorious, but she's not Sarita from Kiniwata, I said. No, there's only one Sarita, and perhaps she does not look the way they say she looked in Kiniwata. She doesn't. I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. <laughs> Do you think eight cows were too many? A smile slid over his lips. No, but how can she be so different? Do you ever think, he asked, what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband is settled on the lowest price for which she can be bought. 
And then later when the women talk, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another says six. How does she feel, the woman who was sold for one or two? This could not happen to my Sarita. Then you did this just to make your wife happy? I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. You say she is different? That is true. Many things can change a woman. Things that happen inside, things that happen outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kiniwada, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows she's worth more than any other woman in the island. Then you want it. He interrupted, I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman, but I was close to understanding. But, he finished softly, I wanted an eight-cow wife. Do you follow that? He gave what he gave because of what he wanted to get. One of the things that when I first started speaking on marriage almost four decades ago now. It suddenly occurred to me, I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. And it suddenly struck me that if I were to treat my wife the way the Bible tells me I should treat my worst enemy, that my marriage would improve 100% overnight. If I just loved her unconditionally, the way you have to love an enemy, that you, don't, you can't keep a record of wrongs, you can't be resentful, you can't be contentious, you can't be scornful. To love someone, you have to be compassionate and kind and humble and all those things. If I'm going to love her the way the Bible tells me, love your enemy, and I'm going to pray for her, then everything is going to change dramatically. And when you realize it, when I come back to saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, when the word of Christ dwells in us, what do we begin to realize? He gave everything. He spent everything. He gave everything he had to save worthless you from sin and death. And then he turns around and says, husbands, that's the way you're supposed to love your wife. Now, Johnny got off cheap and only cost him eight cows. Jesus gave it all. He made himself poor that you might become rich. And when it's all said and done, when we talk about marriage relationships, it's about reflecting that in the marriage. It's revealing that heart of God in the marriage relationship. I get it. That's hard. That is often not romantic but it's real. And it creates something that has real character and substance and value in it. It creates a relationship, a friendship, an intimacy, a trust that has survived a lot of storms. And it becomes the most precious thing that you possess. And you can sit with Solomon and say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. He who finds a husband finds a good thing. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to hear with not only our minds but our hearts 
that we could begin to feel these truths, that you'd give us that kind of Michelangelo brilliance as we look at a relationship that may feel at this moment like a block of lifeless cold marble, that God, that you would begin to give us a vision that as we take up the tools of that compassion, that kindness, that humility, that forbearance, that forgiveness, that gentleness, that love, Lord, that you would begin to chisel away all of the crap that we've allowed to accumulate in our hearts and our minds and that you would allow this thing of beauty to emerge. I pray, God, that you would simply help us to find that path in our own hearts, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. As usual, we're going to continue as uh, Jonathan and Sandy are going to lead us in some worship choruses. And as we do, we always provide a little extra time so that there can be some reflection, if you will. A time in which you can kind of really kind of retract a moment and just begin to process what God has said. And, and the reason is because I, I've learned years ago that as soon as people are out the door. It's like there's a whole nother set of things, you know. I mean, you go home and you start setting up the buffet for the football game and the special dinner for the debates tonight, and you're getting all... <laughs> you're putting the Maylocks out for the debates tonight. <laughs> or you've already just quit. Okay, well, whatever. But it's easy. Life just kind of comes at you and doesn't give you a chance to really kind of absorb anything. This is absorption time. Whether you're singing and worshiping or you're just sitting there quietly and praying or maybe you're with your husband, your wife and just take their hand and pray for your marriage and your relationship because it makes a difference in the world. It matters. The whole world is looking at the church for answers and we have it in Jesus. But as we start out with, you know, the difference that Jesus makes doesn't make a difference. What difference does it make? If Jesus doesn't change me, then how can I tell anybody else? Come to Jesus and he'll change your life. The evidence is, is that not only am I saved, but as I surrender to his greater purpose, as I dedicate and invest myself in this other person that God has brought into my life, and I make a vow to God and I keep it, that his blessing might come upon that relationship, these are the things that matter. They're far more important on whether or not the Seahawks make it to the playoff. It's far more important than worrying about uh, the clowns in the park or the ones who want to be in the White House. It's far more important than any of those kind of things. It really comes down to the one thing that will affect your life more than anything else. To be loved and to be a lover of your husband or your wife.